For those of you brand new to the things of church, you may be wondering why it is in 2022 we still open up the Bible. There's a lot of different ways and reasons and things I might share with you to unpack why that's important. But on this day, I will simply say this. If you knew that there was a collection of writings of people who had explored their spirituality, if you're one of those people who um, intuitively sense, like most people statistically, that there's something more than just what we can taste and see and touch and feel. And if there are people who've written songs and written prayers of doubt and written about encounters that they've had, if there's this collection of stories that has catalyzed the civil rights movement that has uh, caused great redemption and freedom and people throughout like the centuries, wouldn't it be um, worthwhile to open that up, to consider that in some way? And so this, of all the reasons, like it, we believe being the word of God in some way, carries authority for everything that we need. If you're brand new to this whole way of Jesus thing or brand new to church, I just present you with an opportunity to be open to what we might find here. And so with that, I would like to invite you to read this with us for those of you who are a part of our family and who agree. As we open our Bibles, we also open our hearts that these words of truth may fall upon the very fabric of our lives. May these ancient scriptures come alive within us to inspire, to heal, to cleanse, to teach, to restore, and to guide our hearts and minds. Lord, come weave your words of life in us. May we all feel safe with each other, safe to think and question, safe to ask for help, and safe to share our lives with you, our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have a very, very, very simple. You all right, bro? <laughs> very, very simple word for us today. Just wanted to offer as I was thinking about the confluence of Juneteenth and um, Father's Day and you know, all of this time just feels like this, this ramp up into the summer. Um, if you turn with me to John 20, if you have your Bibles, John 20. If you're on your phones, just open up Google and just type in J-O-H-N 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So we have here in this part of the Gospel of John, the Easter account, this is the exciting announcement that literally everything is about to change. So she came running to Simon Peter. Simon Peter is one of the disciples and apprentices of Jesus and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. So to be clear, there's Peter, and then there's the one Jesus loved. Doesn't even need a name. Like, if that's not a flex, I don't know what is. If you're new to the Bibles, you may uh, not know that the person who said that and wrote that is the one who wrote down this book. This is the book of John. He is referring to himself as the one Jesus loved. Not going to do some psychoanalysis on John, but you know, 
Not saying you shouldn't. <laughs> they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where we have put them. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. To be clear, this is like the epic moment, the apex of the whole Christian story. Easter, someone rose from the dead. Easily the biggest, most audacious claim of the Christian story. And what we've got here is like, a, like what happened in the backyard with my brothers. These two stories sit side by side. Resurrection, and you're a faster runner, and I'm the one that Jesus, you know, really loves. John 21. Peter uh, denies Jesus, one of the disciples. We know the story three times. It's this really, like, fascinating scene of just lack of courage, deep fear of what was going on, uncertainty all around, and worried that he might go to the cross, that he might be found out. Peter denies Jesus. And then these final moments that Peter has in the Sea of Galilee, let's pick up in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, so Jesus has now like revealed himself to Simon Peter. This is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs or feed my sheep. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, what's he doing? He's rolling back the tape. Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus is like, I'm going to ask you three times. This is not coincidence. Jesus didn't forget what he said the first two times. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? It's like, oh, oh, you know. <laughs> Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. What is this about? Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. I want to know what Peter's thinking in this moment. Peter turned. Again, he's sitting with the resurrected Savior, who he denied. He has this call on his life to be sort of the forerunner of starting the whole church revolution movement thing. He finds out clearly that Jesus knows that he denied him. He receives both forgiveness 
and a charge. You could say this might be maybe the pinnacle of Peter's life so far, right? You all tracking with me? At this moment, in this scene, Peter turned and saw that the disciple, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Epic moment in his life. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus gives him this prophetic word that he clearly understands about the sort of life and death he's going to have. And Peter's move is to do what? What does he do here? You can shout it out. What does he do? He looks away from Jesus. He looks to Peter. It's John, I'm sorry. And he asks, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? If I had a name for my sermon today, it would simply be, what is it to you? What is it to you? Feed my sheep, take care of my people, take care of the movement, sacred, holy moment. And Peter is distracted. And Peter immediately is comparing. We read in the first century, some first century documents, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs has recorded this uh, about Peter's, um, about John and Peter's death. Um, from Ephesus, he was ordered, this is John, to be sent to Rome, um, where it is affirmed that he cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. He escaped by miracle without injury. One of the emperors, Domitian, afterwards banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Nerva, uh, the successor of Domitian, recalled him. He was the only apostle that we know of that escaped violent death. So not only is he the disciple that Jesus really loved, not only is he super fast, but he didn't have like an epic martyr's death. <laughs> John is winning. <laughs> Peter, on the other hand, like prophesied here, what's recorded in church history is that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward himself, so requiring because that he said, I am unworthy to be crucified in the same way and manner that the Lord was. Jesus tells him, Peter, you're going to be led places you don't want to go. These deaths occur in very, very, very different ways. Peter's response when Jesus gives him a call, what is it to you? How many times have we been invited to follow Jesus, to follow a path, to receive a call on your life, and we miss our unique path and our calling because we're busy being distracted and comparing ourselves to someone else's path. Turn with me to Genesis 27. Do a little biblical survey here. I'm going to move a little quick. Genesis 27. This is the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers 
Esau is the older brother, and there's this scene here where there's a symbolic gesture of blessing for the oldest son. Jacob wants that blessing to steal that blessing, and we read in Genesis 27, verse 8, let's start in 17, then he handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He, Jacob then went to his father's. His father's senile, can't see very well. And it's a really big deal of time to get into it, to receive the father blessing in this society. This is sort of everything, handing down of like the lifeblood of the family. And he went to the father and he said, my father, and remember his father can't see very well. He's not like very well within his body. Yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Now it's really important in the scripture, something to pay attention to if you've never studied the Bible. A, a person, a character's first words are critical. And especially in the Old Testament and the Hebrew writing, Writing, everything loops back around to those first words. It's one of these fascinating little loops that happens in most stories. And so we read then the first thing we hear from the father and from Jacob is, uh, is the, these words, uh, yes, my son, who is it? The question. And then Jacob's first words are, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you will give me your blessing. First time we meet Jacob, we meet he is pretending to be somebody else. Are you really? It goes on, and he responds again, I am. Jacob, wishing, wishing he was somebody else. What's interesting is later on in the story of Jacob, if you turn to Genesis 32, G-E-N-22. I miss like hearing papers. So I'm just going to like listen for the taps on your phone. <laughs> Genesis 32, verse 26. Years have passed. Jacob is headed back to reconcile with his family. And this is the place where Jesus is wrestling with God or with the angel in some way. The man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man, God, an angel, the agent of God in this like vision that he is having. What is your name? So at the end of the story of Jacob, the same question is being asked. This is not happenstance. This is intentional, the way this is recorded, written, and captured for us. What is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with human beings and have overcome. When we meet him, He lies about his name. He is somebody else. And through his journey, he becomes apparently comfortable enough in his own skin. And then he is blessed with your name will no longer be Jacob, but actually Israel. Maybe what happens is we are not okay with how God made us. Jacob's second in order. He's not going to get the blessing. And we wish that we were. As I was thinking about fathers and wanting to also like prepare a message that would be for everyone, I kept thinking about this as a struggle in so many men that I meet with. Like, the, the, the difficulty of reconciling 
like who they actually are. Why was I born into this space? Why this situation? How come I had to go through the fascinating difficulty for all of us in recognizing how not okay we are with who God made us to be? This isn't some whitewashing of our sin and brokenness, but a recognition of our gifts, of our essence, of our soul. Struggles about, I wish that I was born. Maybe for today, Father's Day is super, super, super difficult for you. Because dad was not a factor. Or dad was the X factor to so much of your unhealth and so much of your brokenness. Jacob has to come to terms with his story. Jacob has to come to terms that he is Jacob, that God had these universal purposes for him. But how can God use him when he doesn't want to be who he is? And then when he finally comes to that place of recognition, he gets this call again on his life. I want to call you Israel, which we all know kickstarts the story of blessing for these people. Now, this is true for individuals, and this can also be true for, for groups. If only I had their, their staff, their leadership. If only I had been born into this system. Really quickly, we read in 1 Samuel and we read in 1 Kings, there are the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they, they desperately wanted to be like other nations. There was this plan that God had for them. They would rule in such a way that they would be a blessing for other people. And they were all, um, they were given this invitation that let me lead you by God. Let me be your leader. But they looked around at some of the ease of leadership in other nations. And we get this verse that honestly still haunts even the founding of our own nation today. We've talked about this in political seasons is they wanted a king. They wanted a human leader. They didn't want to be led by God and led to be an alternate people. They wanted to be like other nations. And so God relents and gives them over to this and it ends up being for their destruction and its roots begin with these people who are unwilling to step into their unique calling to be a blessing to the world. Right? Their call and their refrain for chapter upon chapters. What about them? They seem to get what they want. And that very thing, taking on someone else's mantle, taking on someone else's way of being in the world ends up leading to their destruction. And one of the ringing refrains in scriptures around this exchange is a lack of joy. How often do we get distracted and want to pick up someone else's calling and mantle? How often do we move into comparison and we find ourselves losing our joy? Turn with me to Exodus 20. I've shared this before and I just, I try to wait like once every like two years to share the, this particular anecdote because it's just so good. So for all those who've heard it, like, just be thankful you get to hear it again. <laughs> Exodus 20. We read here, this is the famous, like, giving of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is a marriage covenant. This is how we're going to live together. Lest you think the Old Testament is like angry God with no grace, and the New Testament is like finally God just cheers up and is happy. It's like not the case at all. Actually, being saved by grace through faith is exactly what happens in the Exodus story. Exactly. 
It is a forerunner, a foretaste, a precursor of the larger universal salvation that is coming. They did nothing to rescue themselves from Egypt. They are taken up out of the broken and hostile land. They are led through the waters by God alone and those with faith to be able to join with him. And then, just like in the New Testament, when Jesus gets up and gives the Sermon on the Mount and says, this is how we're going to roll together. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You say you love me and you accept my grace. And Jesus says, if you do love me, you'll do what I say. We'll live together in this sort of way. This is what the Ten Commandments are. And it literally, in the ancient language, is, it looks exactly like a marriage covenant. And so... We read in the first commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself uh, an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony about your neighbor. Now, before I read the last one, quick observation. The first nine are externally observable. You can see in every single case when someone breaks one of those commandments. But the tenth is different. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not look up how much they paid for it on Zillow. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I have no joke about that. Or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or Lamborghini or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How do you know that someone's coveted? Right? I could be like having a coveting party right now in my head. Because it's internal. The question is, why is the 10th one a bit different? Now, I'm not laying this out as like official, total, absolute gospel truth. There's so many different commentators on who write about this passage and what's going on here. But there is a number of ancient commentaries and a number of Jewish writings around this that say that the 10th commandment is actually sort of a reward. When you live the way of God, Right? The way of God that teaches you how to live. When you actually live that out, when you live out the first nine commandments, when you step into the life of God, you won't want anyone else's life. When you step into the beautiful calling that God has laid upon you, you're not going to want anyone else's life. When you find your place in God and live true to that, you're not going to want their donkey. <laughs> You will be okay with your own. May this command, it's almost like saying, is when you follow these, you will not covet. All right, last verse. Would you turn with me to Job 5.2? Every time I read Job now, I just think of Kanye as when I thought that Job was a job. Amen. Miss you, old Kanye. Come back. Job 5. 
That one was for two people. <laughs> Job 5.2 says this. Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. So real quick, the words fool and simple. This, just to put it plainly, are people who are unreflective. The fool and the simple here are those that are, are so deeply unaware and unreflective of what's happening in their soul and often what's happening around them. It's the person who never questions their patterns, never questions what's boiling below the surface. And we read here, if this is meant to be some universal truth for us, resentment kills the fool. When someone finds themselves resentful for what someone else has or finds themselves envious, it'll kill you. This will be their downfall. Peter, Peter is being told here, I have a life for you. I have a life for you. Feed my sheep. And Peter looks away. Peter, instead of receiving the call in this moment, misses out on the joy and the possibility. How many times when you found yourself comparing yourself to someone else, do you lose your joy? It's like Peter's asking, are you going to be fair, Jesus? Are you going to be fair with this whole death thing? And clearly he's not. The root of this, right, is that, is that like tired refrain in our world, especially around like Instagram and TikTok. It's like, what about him? What about her? What about them? Or that phrase, like, is it normal? I mean, those people do that. Is it normal for us to feel this? Or is it normal for this to happen? It's like, it doesn't matter what's normal for them. What are you being invited into? And so, to close. I didn't read the last part of the verse. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And then he gives him a call. He gives him a call. What does he read? What does he say? You must follow me. That's it. That's my sermon. Jesus, the God of the universe, to like remind you of the most simple things. He loves you. There's a call on your life. Maybe for you today, it's not some big macro thing. Like, who am I? It's, it's you're having trouble living in your own story, in your own skin. And you're missing out on joy. And you're missing out on life. 
genuinely your calling in life is passing you by little moment by little moment. Remember that famous phrase from Mary Oliver, how we spend our days, how we spend our minutes is how you spend your life. Your life is not out here and the moment right after the service is somewhere else. After the service, there are, there are freeze pops and maybe there are, literally, there are going to be freeze pops after the service for the kids and the dads. There is maybe brunch with friends. Maybe there's a quiet walk. Maybe you got to jump back into work because you got a deadline. Are we moment by moment following Christ and the call that he's put on us? It's a simple invitation today. And as we come to the table and remind ourselves of our identity marked by the love and grace and beauty and joy and forgiveness of Jesus, we will find hopefully ourselves re-examining who we are and who we're called to be. What is it to you that she's gonna crush it and you might not? What is it to you that their life took that trajectory and yours didn't? What is it to you? I have called you. I've appointed you. If we really wanted to do a deep dive in the scriptures, we see a similar sounding refrain throughout the early church. What is it to you? What is it to you? And so I want to invite you in these last few minutes as we come to the table. My sense is that there's some folks, maybe even specifically some dads, where like who you are feels like up in the air. You feel out of your body. You're like, I am literally watching my life go by. And so whether it's the comparison that's killing, I thought I'd be here now. Whether it's the feeling listless, like I don't even know what my call is. I don't know. You're talking about discipling my kids. I don't, I don't even have time to pray myself. For some of us, it's like, I thought I would be somewhere else when I turned 35, when I turned 40. But I do extend this invite, not just to the dads, to all of us. Some of our prayer team is going to be here in the corner. And if you want to receive prayer ministry, if you want to come and just sit at the front, there'll be some other folks, home church leaders will come along and just bless you. If you just need to receive those words again, I encourage your prayer team just to engage with that. It's like, look, Jesus is inviting you to follow him, not anyone else. What are you following? What are you following? Friends, this verse over the last decade has been one I've returned to often. It's like in my top five because I find myself constantly being pulled this way and that. How beautiful and joyful and restful and invigorating it is to be who God called you to be. Amen? Would you stand with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come. A sermon like this is not meant to end the conversation, but to begin it. And Lord, I trust that there are some things, some details, some specifics, Lord, that you want to unearth in the hearts and minds and souls of those in the room today. And so we don't want to rush off in our mind to what's next. We commit to you these next 10 minutes asking, Lord, 
where do you want to shine a light? What like dark corner of comparison and envy and distraction do you want to shine a light on? God, maybe you want to pour out like a fresh calling or rekindle a calling on someone's life or a focus. I pray a blessing over the fathers right now. Maybe you're like, I have been absent. Like I hear cats in the cradle, like in the background. And I need to be present to my family and I need to slow down because I am missing it because I am chasing someone else's calling or, a, or an illusion of the calling that God gave me. I just am asking you, Holy Spirit, would you move and fall as we just sing of our love for you. We sing of how good you are, of how your way is the best way. You're worthy of being followed because that's in you where the love and life and beauty and generosity and goodness are. And so as we sing, Jesus, we love you. And as we take the bread and dip it in the cup and remember your love for us and your forgiveness, Lord Jesus, would you move? Holy Spirit, would you move? Amen. So friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, sitting with these same disciples, these ones prone to comparison, the really fast ones and the ones that are going to die a miserable death. <laughs> He sits with them and he breaks the bread. He says, this is my body that was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember my call. Remember my love. Remember my forgiveness. And then he takes the cup after supper and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as you come, I invite you to come up the center aisle take the bread, dip it in the cup. If you'd rather take one of the sealed cups, we have these as well, and you can bring that back to your seat. We made a little more room, a little more room up front here. If you'd like to come and kneel at the altar, come and receive prayer ministry. You just need maybe just a father blessing today. Or you can come and sit in the front and wait till people have come by and then stay at the altar as we pray and sing for a few minutes. Church, let's come. For those in the balcony, someone will come up and serve you in a moment.